0: This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.
1: When people in our community, when they think of this place, they're supposed to know this as a place of prayer. God wants to move, but He moves in response to prayer. So in a real way, God says, you first.
0: Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. My name's Aaron and you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Welcome to today's episode. And in this episode, we'll hear about Jesus clearing out the temple of traders and customers, demanding that God's house be a house of prayer. It happened on two occasions as documented in some of the Gospels. Today, Pastor Jeff is looking at the account found in Mark chapter 11 on prioritizing prayer.
1: If you have a Bible with you, I want you to turn to this passage in Mark chapter 11. Uh, It's recorded a couple times in the Gospels, in the harmony of the Gospels. But Mark chapter 11, and just to get you ready for where we're going to go, some famous last words. Okay, famous last words. uh, They're not real. Some of them are more infamous than they are famous. For instance, James French. Now remember that last name, French. Okay. James French, he was a convicted murderer the day before his execution, called all of his cellmates together and said, hey, guys, how about this for tomorrow's headlines in the newspaper, French fries? So I told you some are famous, some are. I mean, come on. Thomas Grasso, this is kind of interesting. He was convicted, also a convicted murderer on death row. He requested that his last meal be SpaghettiOs. Now, SpaghettiOs are not the same thing as spaghetti. They're different, Right? He didn't get SpaghettiOs. They gave him spaghetti. And his last words, I didn't get SpaghettiOs. I want the whole world to know. Why? <laughs> Does anyone really care? Joan Crawford, the uh, actress, she was on her deathbed. Her, her uh, housekeeper began praying a prayer for her. And Joan Crawford's last words were, Dagnabbit, don't you dare ask God to help me. Man, I would hate for that to be the very last thing I said, wouldn't you? Uh, Bob Hope, the comedian, When his wife asked him where he wanted to be buried, he said, surprise me. (laughs) John Sedgwick, I like this story. He was a general in the Union Army, and he actually died in mid-sentence. And his mid-sentence was this, there's no way they could hit an elephant at that distance. Got it? (laughs) Some of you got it. My favorite one is, of course, I've used before, Voltaire said that the Bible would be eradicated and the name of Jesus will never be heard again, and of course, he died, and they turned his house into a printing press that printed Bibles, and that's, that's interesting. And then finally, the rock star, Johnny Ace, some of you will know who that is. Uh, he was playing with a gun backstage before he was supposed to go on concert, and his last words, this gun's not loaded, see? That was it. These are not my last words, <laughs> But we want to relate to you a certain segment of Scripture that has really had an impact, not just a little impact. Scripture has impacted all the way through, but a major impact on us that we just can't seem to shake that comes back again and again and again. And here's how that passage that leads to one or two lines goes. You'll find it in Mark 11. Here's the story. We're told that on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus enters the temple, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is not written, or is it not written rather, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, Most of us growing up have seen photos or paintings of Jesus, right? One of my favorite, Jesus walking on the water. Do you remember that? It's quite famous. There's another one with Jesus seated and the little children coming around him in the scripture, let the little children come to me. There's another one that my friend Bill Kirshner, who was my first youth pastor in New Zealand, now is a campus pastor on the University of Indiana campus. He loves the one where Jesus has the lamb on his shoulders. My grandmother had this huge, huge painting on her wall. It was bigger than any other thing in her house. And it was Jesus standing at the door knocking, representing the passage in Revelation 3.20. And then my personal favorite is the newest of all of those. It's where Jesus is standing behind a defeated man. And the picture that you get is there's no way this guy can go on. He's lost all strength and all hope, but Jesus is still behind him, pulling him, lifting him up. But in your wildest dreams, could you ever fathom why God would put this passage in the Bible as if he really wanted us to know what happened on this day? Because there's actually three records of this. Matthew, Mark, and John record this, two different occasions, but three different gospels. Because I have no trouble seeing Jesus with a lamb on his shoulders or forgiving the woman who was caught in adultery or eating with the sinners or raising Lazarus from the dead. But when I think of Jesus physically emoting this way, it's hard to understand. I mean, can you see Jesus picking up the tables and throwing them on the side? Just kind of going through and clearing everything, taking the money and throwing it up in the air and everybody's trying to scatter and pick up what's left behind? That he physically stands in the way of those bringing in uh the sheep or the goats or the cattle, he stands in the way and tells them, "No, don't bring not not here, not now, not ever. Get that stuff out of here." That's not the kind of language, not the kind of action we think Of Jesus doing? And folks, by the way, if you study the harmony of the Gospels, you realize this is not the first time Jesus did this. We we just read in Mark, but John 2 tells us that Jesus did it when he first began his ministry. So one of the first things Jesus did in his public ministry is to go into the temple. And the Bible tells us that he actually made a whip out of cords. So now that takes premeditation, doesn't it? I mean, he comes into the temple, he sees what they're doing, he's pretty he's angered over it and he starts to he starts to take these leather strands. It takes a bit to build a cord, to build a whip. So what's he thinking to himself? Oh, I'm going to get these guys. I'm tired of this. I've seen this all my life, but now I'm old enough and I'm going to go in here. I'm going to tell these guys and I'm going to drive them out. I mean, you just don't think of Jesus responding that way, do you? And then what, you know, what does he do? Does he make the whip, he turns and he says, "What in the name of me are you doing?" Does anybody get that? I thought that was funny. Or O-M-M, oh my me. You got it? Somebody got it. When I think of Jesus driving people out like this, this is not the way Jesus is pictured in the New Testament. And then we're told that he returns again at the end of his ministry. So the beginning, then at the end, and he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. So it's a pretty important event. And along the way, he says to his disciples, wait here, got to take care of something first. Think about this. Before I go die on the cross, I got to go chase these guys out of the temple again. And you can think of the disciples saying, oh no, here he goes again. He always has to do this. And it's the famous saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. It just keeps coming back to me in my ministry. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. What's really interesting historically speaking, is that the people who were there actually belonged there because there, were, there was no way to offer the sacrifices prescribed in the Levitical code or the law of Moses unless there were people on spot selling you what you needed to go in and offer sacrifice or, or to participate in some kind of celebration. So people were coming from miles and miles and miles, so you couldn't cart. I mean, it's not like they could just haul the U-Haul. You, you, instead of bringing all these things from a long, long distance, they were available for purchase on site. So The goats and the doves, whatever they were selling for whatever ceremony, they had a right. They were supposed to be there, but they had a movie theater mentality, right? You pay 16 bucks for a big Coke and a popcorn. Now, you would not do that any other place, but they got you, don't they? Because you know it's un-American to watch a movie without popcorn, and they know that you know that. So they're going to charge you like, I mean, what's the markup on that? A thousand percent, probably more than that. So some of you are like me, you stop at Target on the way and load up in the backpack, which you're not supposed to do. You know that, don't you? That's wrong. And you can't hide popcorn, really, and they know that. That's why they sell it. And then you go up to the counter, and I won't stay on this too long, but you go up to the counter, and they say, now you're getting a 32-ounce drink. And they say, for 50 cents more, you can have 64. 64. Man, if you're drinking 64-ounce soda, that's a whole nother sermon you need. I mean, come on. So they gouge you. So that's what was happening in the temple. First of all, they were gouging the price because they knew it was convenient. And you were going to have to pay it. The second thing they were doing, they were hitting them a second time with the exchange rate because you could not use Greek or Roman money. You had to exchange it for Jerusalem money to be used there, minted right there in Jerusalem. So you were paying... Uh, the airport exchange rate. You know, if you're going to exchange money, don't do it at the airport in case you didn't know that. So they're gouging the prices for convenience, and at the same time, they're, they're charging you an ungodly exchange rate, all because you've got people of purity of heart trying to do the right thing. So, so Jesus comes into the temple. He knows what's going on. He stands as a personal blockade and tells the Gentiles, stop doing this or sorry, the Jewish marketer sellers, stopped doing this. Folks, they were doing it in the courts of the temple. You're supposed to do it on the outside, but they were bringing their merchandise right onto the inside, which means that they were committing this kind of sacrilege. So Jesus comes in and this is his overriding message. My father's house is a house of prayer. My father's house shall be called a house of prayer. And all through my ministry, The Spirit of God continues to remind me of that periodically. Because remember, a lot of good things were happening in the temple. Cleansing and purifying ceremonies, a lot like our modern-day baptism. The proclamation of the Word of God, a lot like our modern-day preaching. The singing of hymns and psalms related to our modern-day worship. The celebration of feasts, like our modern-day communion. But Jesus says he wants his house to be a house of prayer. Preaching, yes, but it will be called a house of prayer. Singing, yes, but it will be called a house of prayer. So every summer when I was growing up, my mother would force us to go out and pick blackberries. You got the thorns and everything. And each, I had three brothers. We were required to fill a two-gallon bucket each. And when we did that, we we were, that's it. So you could either do it slowly like my younger brother did, or you could do it as fast as you could to get it over with like I did. We would get home. It was in the summer, obviously, before air conditioning. At least we didn't have air conditioning which was oh, ruthless. And my mom would open all the windows and doors and have the fans going in my hometown. This is the house I grew up in in Elizabeth, Tennessee. And she would pour all of those blackberries in and then she would combine it with sure gel. They still do that? Sure gel is nothing but pure sugar. And then you would have this smell wafting out of the vine's house through the windows and the doors of blackberry jam. And man, she would make 50, sometimes 75 jars of this jam because she knew she was gonna give a lot of it away to the neighbors. And as soon as those smells started wafting and the aroma started going through the windows, all the little kids from the neighborhood would line up at the front door because they could smell it a mile away to get their free blackberry jam. Now, here's the thing. According to Jesus and the scriptures, God's house is supposed to have the aroma of prayer. The thing that is supposed to distinguish Christian people and Christian meetings, Christian gatherings, is the aroma and atmosphere of prayer. When people in our community, when they think of this place, they're supposed to know this as a place of prayer. And the reason is that God wants to move in the life of every individual, but he moves in response to prayer. Now, that's a whole nother sermon. You might say, why? doesn't really matter why. What matters is this is what we're told. God wants to move, but he moves in response to prayer. So in a real way, God says, you first. If you ever notice in the book of Acts, the Christian church was not born while someone was preaching. It was born while people were praying. In Acts chapter 2, what were they doing? They were praying and waiting on God. They were praying and hoping and waiting, and Pentecost came. Now, preaching followed for an explanation of the gospel, but the church is born while people are praying. And the reason is Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and the disciples are beaten up. They're persecuted because they're preaching the name of Jesus. Now, what did they do after they were beaten up and tortured? Did they go out and protest? Did they take the matter to the Supreme Court? Did they try to get some political leverage? No. They go back to a prayer meeting and they say, God, give us courage to to speak the gospel in the face of death. Give us a boldness in spite of the threats that we're receiving so that it appears that God's intentions for us are this. When in trouble, pray. When intimidated, pray. When challenged, pray. When sick, pray. When Diagnosed with a terminal illness, pray when persecuted, pray when anxious, pray when afraid, pray, pray. And there's something special about our prayers according to scripture. I had been in Africa for 10 years and now I was living in New Zealand. My mom passed away. While I was living in New Zealand, and on one trip I came back. This probably was six or seven years after my mom had died. And my father said, Look, I want to show you something. I've been meaning to do this for a long time. So he took me back in the back bedroom, and he opened up this chest, and in that chest was another box, and it had my name on it, and he took out that box, and my mother had kept every report card I had ever had in my life, and every basketball clipping from the time I was five to the time I graduated college, she had kept all those clippings, and my father said on days she would miss you when you were in Africa, she would go and get that box, and she would look at the report cards, and she would just go through those clippings, and she would cry, but she would also have joy. There was a time of remembering something that had happened in the past and somehow it drew her closer to you. Now, I use that example because the same thing evidently happens with us, our prayers, and God. And as I was doing the series on the book of Revelation about eight years ago, I came across Revelation 5, 8 that says this. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And you start thinking, what must prayer be to God that he keeps it in bowls? That he goes to God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit and says, hey, read another one. Get those prayers out and let's read them. Let's remember a time when Jeff Bynes was praying, when he had hope." when he had trust in the Father, because he hasn't talked to me in a while. Get one of those out. Read the name, read the prayer, so that when you and I stand or we kneel before God in prayer and we talk to God and we really open our hearts, somehow these are kept in heaven and they are precious to God. Okay, Jeff, we got it. What's your point? My point is, what if God wants to heal? What if God wants to cure our depression and anxiety and in Eternal frustrations. What if he really wants to heal our city? What if he wants to restore our families? What if he wants to bring our children back to us? What if he wants to heal our marriages? But he's waiting. Waiting for what? For his house to become a house of prayer. That's what he's waiting. Beyond token prayers, not just token prayers, but prayers that are motivated by a burden of the heart. Real, authentic, passion-filled, spirit-filled prayers. What if that's what he's waiting on? First time I went to Rwanda, my translator, Anastas Sabamunga. It was the first time now. I'm going to go back years after this, but the first time, I got to tell you, I was very nervous. I'm thinking, I'm out of my element here. He's taking me into this prison where people are responsible for orchestrating the genocide of killing over a million people in Rwanda. And I'm supposed to go in and preach the gospel to these murderers. And then the first time I went, they put me in a prison that held 5,000 women. I was the only guy in there. Listen, 5,000 nice women are intimidating. These are, these are people who have used machetes. And Anastas looked at me and he could tell, this is our first relationship, you know, he could tell I was a little nervous. And I love what he did. He stood as if he was in a defensive position playing basketball. He bent his knees and he looked at me and he said, Pastor Jeff, I know you're nervous. It's okay. Just give me whatever you got. I'll clean it up through the translation." He said, I can't, do, I can't work with nothing, but if you'll just give me something, I'll make sure it has power. And you know what the Bible says? That's exactly what Jesus does for you. You don't have to, you don't have to be good at prayer. You just got to give him something to work with. And the Bible says if you give it to him, Jesus will take it, translate it, and make it appear much better than it is because he's on your side. You say, where does it say that? Romans eight twenty six for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So somehow he communicates to the Father in a way that you and I can't, but he has to have something to work with. You gotta give him something. And then Jesus says, look, those people are praying to you for the city, for their children, for their marriages. They're praying to see you. In a way, they've never seen you before. And then according to scripture, and we find this later out, and this is, is kind of like the harmony of the gospels in the Pauline epistles, we learn that when you pray like that, then God says, okay, that's it. Deploy Michael and the archangel. And then you're saying, what? Paul is clear. In Ephesians 6, he says, their struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. See, our mistake is we think our real battle is with our husband or wife or children or community or with Washington. That's not where the real battle is. The real battle is in the heavenly realms. In other words, what Jesus is saying to you and me is you're not strong enough to do this. You need supernatural intervention and you get supernatural intervention when you start to pray. Pray because your real enemy principalities powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age and jesus said that's why people who are humble and really realize what they're up against there will be those who will just go through life thinking that's as good as it gets then there will be those few those called those chosen ones that will remember that he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world there's a spiritual battle going on and if his house becomes a house of prayer he will release his power into our lives and Things will happen that we've not seen before, done before, nor felt before. And it didn't start just in the New Testament. It's all the way back in 2 Chronicles 7. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Folks, listen. Don't you want more? I mean, aren't you kind of bored with In in some ways with the whole church thing, it's okay to be honest. You're in church. That's the way to go. Don't don't you kind of get in a rut sometimes? Okay, we have this song, then this song, then Jeff speaks, and then we have this. Isn't there something that is missing? And do you know where you've, let me tell I'm just being very honest. I'm glad you're here. Don't stop coming. I'm glad you're here. But do you know where you're going to find it, what you're looking for? Is on the Monday night prayer meeting that happens once a month, the first Monday night. And many of you have never been there, and that's why you're feeling the way that you do. And you can't deny it, but yet you can't explain it. God shows up. And I wonder if it's because on that night, his house has become a house of prayer. Is there something about when you become a house of prayer, God is just motivated to show up? Not everybody gets healed, but there have been some people healed. Not everybody gets exactly what they want, but God moves and releases his divine energy into their lives. And it's not like this is kind of a shocker. This is the history of the early church.
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Finds. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
1: One time I was at a mega church pastor's conference in the early days, and we were all having roundtable discussions about issues of what's going on in our churches. We seem to be getting a lot of people, but not very many disciples. And finally, I dared to speak what everybody knew, that the church has become a mile wide and an inch deep. Is it that we don't need prayer, folks? I mean, are we so self-sufficient we don't really need God? Is society so good that there's no need to pray?
0: You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff finds" wherever you listen to podcasts.